0: We start with the escalating cost of living in this city. Everything is going up. Inflation at record high levels right now, the highest in 30 years. What is going up specifically? How about rents? Rents are going through the roof. If you are a tenant, you are feeling the pain. Rent hikes in the city of Vancouver. Brand new report out yesterday. Vancouver has the highest rents in canada the biggest rent hikes in the country last year have a listen to this report now from global news reporter katherine urquhart
1: amy libby and her husband spend about 2300 a month on rent for their 1200 square foot townhouse in abbotsford it's a lot of money for the family of four we were lucky and found our home on a community page Um, but it was still $400 over what we were previously paying, even just from a year ago. Amy's situation is not uncommon. Rents in Metro Vancouver continue to soar. A report for Rentals.ca shows Vancouver has the priciest rentals in the country. A one-bedroom apartment has an average monthly rent of $2,167, up 13% over the previous year. We can make our rent payments, we can pay our bills, but that's it. Like, we don't go out to eat, our daughters aren't in any extra curricular activities we don't really do anything as sad as that sounds we just can't afford to
0: okay let's discuss now with the situation with escalating rents in metro vancouver my uh, guest is michelle bida legal advocate at the tenant resource and advisory center i'm very pleased to welcome her hi michelle
1: oh hi thanks for inviting track on the show
0: you bet. Thank you for doing that today. So we take a look at these some of these rent hikes in this brand new report that's just come out Michelle. So according to rentals.ca, average monthly rent in Vancouver for a one bedroom, okay, one bedroom, $2,167. Like I know some people who would probably be be happy <laughs> to pay that much cuz I know you can pay a lot more. You got to remember that's for a one bedroom, right?
1: yeah for sure and a lot of people of course who are working uh lower wage jobs are are simply not able to afford to live in the city of vancouver anymore um the, the tenants quoted in the this story you just played are yeah. you know that's a rent that they're paying out in abbotsford mm-hmm. out in the valley and that's what that what we see a lot of times is tenants who lose their housing in vancouver end up having to move further and further away from the City core and and one of the knock on effects of that is um, tends to be labor shortages mm. and we 're certainly seeing that now a lot in Vancouver i mean on on top of covid a lot of businesses and restaurants in particular are having a hard time operating because um they can't find staff. Yeah.
0: Okay, we got the highest rents in the country and we also had the biggest rent hike on average in Canada last year according to this report. So the price for renting a one bedroom apartment last year on average in Vancouver up 13.2% on average. Wow. Like that is a yeah, that's a that, huge How is that possible because we got we got rent controls in this province, right?
1: Well, exactly. You think about it, we had a rent freeze for last year and that was to try and help with um covid relief for people who had who had lost jobs. So what that tells you is that a lot of people were being evicted. Because in yeah. uh, BC is a jurisdiction with no vacancy control between tenants. So historically um CM, cmha started reporting on this a couple of years ago. the the average asking rent for a vacant unit in Vancouver is more than 20% higher than the overall average rent for occupied units. So any tenant who's evicted is facing a 20% premium. when they move into a new place.
0: Speaking to Michelle Beda, she is a legal advocate for tenants, and we're taking a look at rent hikes in Vancouver and Metro Vancouver, sky high, highest in Canada, highest rents in the country. So you mentioned, like, when some tenants are evicted, is, is this the, the rent eviction that we hear about, right? Because it's, you can legally, as a landlord, if you were going to renovate a suite or an apartment, you can legally evict a tenant, and then what? Then you can jack up the rents for the new tenant. Then you, you escape the, yeah, price, you the rent control.
1: Yeah, and it's not just rent evictions. The B.C. government actually just recently tightened the regulations on uh, renovations so that a landlord now has to demonstrate that they actually need to do extensive renovations, which require eviction, before they can issue that notice. The problem is any other type of eviction, whether that's a landlord use eviction, so if a landlord says, I'm moving in, or a close family member is moving in, or if they're selling the unit and the... um, seller says they're moving in or frankly what saw a lot of during covid was what looked like pretty spurious cause eviction notices um because landlords weren't able to evict for a brief period uh, for non-payment or for other issues um we were seeing a lot of people calling saying you know my landlord's just evicting me they're saying i did x y or z that never really happened um but in in B.C., apart from this new rent eviction regulation, there's no control over um, evictions in the sense that all a landlord has to do to evict someone is print off a form, fill it out, hand it to the tenant. So they're not tracked, they're not registered in any way. And for a lot of tenants who, who get an eviction notice, it costs $100 to file to dispute it. There's a lot of uncertainty about how they're going to go about doing that a lot of people just get an eviction notice of any kind and and move
0: okay but obviously like okay obviously like a landlord has to have the ability to evict a tenant that is damaging the property a tenant who is not paying the rent a tenant maybe who's breaking the lease by having pets or something that's against the rules so obviously you know there are legit oh, reason. Yeah. There are legit reasons to evict someone, but you're saying that what it's it's too easy for landlords to evict someone on a flimsy uh, reason.
1: Yeah, it's really it's really easy because, as I say, a lot of people just don't. They're not going to dispute it, um, especially people who who face you know language or literacy barriers, or who just don't have the the time resources to figure out how to go through this process of filing for an eviction, then serving the packages, preparing to uh, to make a case before an arbitrator. It's really daunting for a lot
0: of people. Okay. Um, do, you, do you therefore think that tenants, I mean, this is a, a tenant-friendly government, I would argue here we have in power in British Columbia, and they've strengthened tenants' rights in BC, but you think they should be further strengthened, fair to say?
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't know if you're familiar with a report that came out of UBC last year. They did a Canada-wide survey and found that uh, BC was the evictions capital of Canada.
2: Mm, okay.
1: So across the across the country, there was an, an average of uh, like five point seven percent. I think of of people's last move had been due to an eviction in BC. It was it was over ten percent. Wow. Um, that's yeah. That's a really significant um, gap. Between the rest of the country and here, and I think that's largely because there there are so many uh, financial pressures and incentives for landlords to move existing tenants out and get wow. new tenants in who can who can pay that um, you know unlimited rent increase. So yeah, I think it makes sense uh, in Ontario. In order to effect a, a an eviction, a landlord has to just file it with with the equivalent of the, of the residential tenancy branch. So they fill out the paperwork. I would hope that they would have some evidence or documentation about the reason for their eviction, um, and then the, the proceeding could go ahead that way.
0: Okay. Thank you for coming on with your analysis on it. I appreciate it.
1: Oh, you're welcome, and thanks again for uh, asking us.
0: All right, let's talk about crime on the streets of Vancouver. Now, brand new report out on this tracked crime in the city during the first year of the COVID pandemic. The findings, violent crime up in key Vancouver neighborhoods, especially the poorest neighborhoods of the city. Meanwhile, theft related crime, especially vehicle theft up in the more well-to-do parts of the city. Let's discuss now with my guest Martin Anderson, who is a criminology professor at Simon Fraser University. He was the lead author of this study. Martin, thank you for coming on today.
3: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: Okay, let's talk about the findings in this study. So you looked at the first year of the pandemic. So what time frame are we talking about there?
3: Uh, from March 2020 until the end of February 2021.
0: Okay, and you found. Let's talk violent crime first of all. So, violent crime is up in which parts of the city in that period?
3: It's in the areas of in and around Strathcona, uh, downtown Eastside, and you know, as you as you mentioned, the the lower socioeconomic status areas in our neighborhoods in the city.
0: Right. So, the poorer Um, parts of the city got more uh, violent crime increase. How do you analyze that?
3: um, It's. We used a spatial statistical technique to look for pattern uh, pattern change over time, and like the increases in in assaults are are moderate uh, but the increases in burglary and robbery are are higher and this is these are areas with, that have been hit particularly hard uh, by the pandemic with job losses you know increased homelessness and what have you and so these marginalized populations have Effectively, they're being victimized again, and shows the need for for social services in these areas for the people who are most hit, most hit by the pandemic.
0: Okay, what about violent crime in other parts of the city, and say the more wealthier parts of Vancouver?
3: Uh, that's that's all been uh, large. It's largely been down. Yeah, the wealthier areas of the city have seen increases in. And uh, auto-related theft, so theft of and theft from auto, and also general theft. But These numbers, like their the monthly increases are likely in one or two crimes, um, maybe, maybe three crimes in a month. So what ends up being statistically significant, so a deviation from the trend, but uh, small increases nonetheless. And that's largely just due to these people um, don't have their cars downtown anymore, where they would be uh, most likely to get, end up getting... Um, Getting broken into and stolen before because you know, parked in uh, car parks all day long.
0: Okay, so theft is up, especially theft from vehicles in sort of the more well to do neighborhoods in Vancouver. So we're talking like Kitsilano, I'm taking a look at your report Kitsilano, Kerrisdale, uh, yeah. Oak Ridge, Killarney. We're seeing increase. So, so violent crime down in those neighborhoods, but theft related crime up in those areas, right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and Okay, so let's go back to the, the the violent crime going up in the poorer neighborhoods. What do you think is driving that? Like, you think that's driven by the pandemic? Uh,
3: well, it's we we had a baseline of uh, three years before, so very likely. Like, you know, we have we see an increase in assaults. We've, we've seen an increase in uh, in uh, in robberies as well. Uh, and again, that's all in you know down in the areas. In and around Strathcona, uh, downtown east side, and it's uh, it's very it's very likely related to related to the pandemic in the sense of what it's what it's forced people to to do to survive. And you know, people are um, we don't have data, individual level data, but you know, very likely what's going on here is you know, people are they're they're stealing for food, they're robbing money for you know so they can end up getting food and paying their rent.
0: Yeah, and I imagine drug addiction has got to be fueling part of it too, or a lot of it
3: um well you know we there, there there are we don't have data um data on that but it wouldn't be uh so i so i don't really i don't want to comment on uh, on drug addiction um but these are the areas where we have the highest levels of drug use in um uh in vancouver and in in it is the poorest urban census tract in all of canada no.
0: Yeah. Okay. So I, I don't think maybe it should be that surprising that we see violent crime up in these these poor neighborhoods. So let's talk about the, the solutions to that. So your your report argues for increased social services there?
3: Yeah. You know, a lot, a lot of these like, research has shown historically, especially when you're dealing with areas in the den of having high levels of drug use, is that if you end up uh, well, one, if you end up providing social services, so providing providing housing is an um, incredibly positive and cost-effective way of reducing crime. Um, providing um, it, pr- providing drugs to people who end up needing them uh, is inc- is incredibly cost-effective and has been shown to lead to increases in people getting off of those drugs. Right? What,
0: so what kind of drugs? Like you mean, like give people a, what kind of drugs do you propose giving them?
3: Uh, well, just making available to people who use it, so like drugs uh, such such as heroin and and related drugs that go along with it for getting people off of um, off their addiction.
0: So, what, what do you say it to people like you know when people hear that argument uh, and they say, "Okay, we see violent crime up in these super poor neighborhoods here, and it largely it appears to be a lar- lot of it driven by drug addiction," and the answer is to give people heroin, <laughs> like you know,
3: well, it's uh you know, I feel like you you're twisting my words a little, little why wow, didn't bit, you just,
0: yeah, yeah, didn't you is, just say that didn't you just bit. say that to me give them heroin did I hear you wrong?
3: Um, well, I'm saying I think one of the things that needs to be done in these areas where we have drug addiction is to provide uh, to provide the drugs for the people because it helps them get off of these uh, get off of these drugs. It ends up reducing property crime, ends up reducing violent crime, uh, and there's been uh, there's been studies to show that decreases of crime are upwards of eighty to ninety percent uh, for these populations because they don't have to steal to survive anymore. And these are already marginalized groups that are dealing with all sorts of uh, all sorts of disadvantage and all sorts of different abuse. And so, you know, usually when we end up having people, um, you, know, you know, sort of scoffing at, uh, at at research like that, it comes from a very privileged position. And we need to remember that a lot of these people have uh, have had a lot of a lot of struggles in their life, and um, uh, and help. This is one way to. And housing is probably one of the best things we can do is provide people with stable housing.
0: Speaking of criminology, Professor Martin Anderson from Simon Fraser University, brand new study out on crime trends in the city during the pandemic, violent crime up in Vancouver's poorest neighborhoods. What about police resources? We've talked to police officials on the show here who say that they're under-resourced. They, they want a budget lift from the city um, to better deploy, uh, to address the rising crime rates in parts of the city. And yet, we we also have a, a campaign in the city to defund the police. What are your thoughts on that?
3: Um, well, the defund the police movement is largely out of my expertise. I have done the research in mental health uh, and the police interactions with mental uh, with the mental ill. Vancouver Police Department was not interested in being involved in a research project that I was proposing on that a couple of years ago. Um, but they uh, that we do need to defund the police. At, like I'm not talking about abolition of police, but defund the police, bring in more social services to end up having people um, help address mental health issues, address um, you know, drug addiction issues because they're not, largely the police aren't trained for that. Um, as far as crime, uh, crime going up and asking for more resources, you know, crime composes about 20 to 25% of police calls for service. This is across the country and coming in the United States as well. Um, and crime has been going down in Vancouver for the past twenty years, so I'd have to know um, more information on why so, they're cleaning crime is driving their need for more resources.
0: Oh, okay. So would you propose then when you when we talk about defund the police, like are you saying that you should reduce the police budget and and put that money into social services, or should you increase the budget for both? Like you know, I've heard the argument, okay, I've talked to police officers who say. Yeah, like we would like some help for mental health experts to deal with, with mental illness on the street. Yeah, please help us with that, but don't take the money out of our budget to fund it. What are your thoughts?
3: Yeah, um, I think that that's, uh, I, I'm, I'm not surprised that they end up making, um, making a statement like that. Um, police budgets do, uh, do need to increase along with everything else. They take up around 20-25% to municipal Municipal budgets, and when it comes to the you know, treatment for uh, for people who are who are suffering from mental illness' um, it 's it's actually much more cost effective to have other social services end up helping, helping them and again, yeah. provision of housing is one of those things, and uh, you know most, the vast majority of the budget that the police end up having is based on for their for their people and for their uh, you know for their cars and that there isn 't a lot of discretionary movement in those budgets um,
0: I guess, I guess the pro, I guess the problem that I hear quite often from police officers that I speak to, and they'll say, yeah, there is a lot of mental illness on the street that we are dealing with every single day, and we would love to have some help with that. But there are many cases where police are responding to a mental health call, but it includes threats of violence or violence that has occurred where you need a police response. Like it may be a mental health situation, yeah but uh, like a social worker can't deal with it, you need a cop there too,
3: right? In situations, when, when someone is um, either a danger to themselves or others, then um, those individuals will usually be apprehended under the Met- Mental Health Act, and that has to be done by a police officer. And But if we end up providing... You know, more social services for these populations uh, rather than, you know, dropping them off at the place, drop them off at the hospital, and they sit there and they wait for, you know, two or three hours, and yeah. they, see, they see someone, a mental health expert, and then they end up being released. We need to provide these populations who need the support with that support, and so we don't end up having this continued cycle where they end up being back out on the street, um, yeah. back out without housing, with insecure food access, and then they end up getting into altercations with the police. If if they're, um, the, the number of people who are repeatedly in contact with the police is fair is, in a, in a problematic way is very is is relatively small. It's a, a small percentage of the population ends up taking up a yeah. huge component of this. So if we can treat that, if we can help those people, uh, providing yeah. the social services, that'll have uh, that'll take work you know take away the workload from from the police. They won't continue to have to do mm-hmm. that.
0: Okay. Thank you for coming on to talk about the report today. I appreciate it. You're welcome. All right. Welcome back to the show as we continue talking about crime rates and trends in the city. You heard my conversation there with Martin Anderson, who's a criminology professor at Simon Fraser University. His new study, violent crime up in the poor neighborhoods of Vancouver, property crime up in the more well to do or higher income neighborhoods of the city. Let's check in with John Clarides now, owner of Marquis Wine Cellar on Davie Street. Hey, John yes sir how are you i'm john thanks a lot for coming on we speak to john frequently about the the situation on the streets of the neighborhood where there's a lot of disorder what did you think about like when you take hear about this report violent crime up in in poor neighborhoods does that i don't i don't think that's that surprising but you tell me your thoughts on it no it, 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 it is definitely not surprising but the violent
4: crime with the people I've spoken to within the the police department and just being on the street and speaking to other merchants, violent crime is up. From my perspective, anyway, at all, all parts of the city. Um, Just let me give you a quick example. Right next door to my wine shop is a small veterinary clinic. Two people were inside back to the window waiting for their uh, cat to be um, taken care of. Some fellow walks by, takes a sandwich board, throws it through the plate glass window they weren't hurt and they ended up catching him this goes on all the time in vancouver um one of my best friends her friend was uh hit in the back of the head someone found him in a parking lot and he had to go to the uh had to go to the hospital and someone on twitter the other day just said uh, a friend of theirs was hit with a pipe on the back of the head so that doesn't surprise me at all
0: okay that doesn't surprise me my guest made the case for effectively like defunding the police like if, if you draw down resources from the police and tra- and give more resources to social workers or mental health workers that this is this is the answer what do you think of that argument
4: well first i want to just say just from my, i'm not necessarily an expert but i'm a, a reasonably well uh, educated observer and reader um we can see what's happened in San Francisco in the tenderloin. We can see what's happened in Los Angeles. We can see what's happened in uh, Austin, Portland, and uh, Seattle by defunding the police that's not necessarily a great idea if someone is hurt someone needs help we we need the police on our side and violent crime has to be dealt with with uh, by by the police department. The interesting thing that I find is that uh, people. i uh, speaking to the city manager a while ago. He told me there are two to three hundred people living living on the street with no frontal cortex, which means they do things without reasoning. Just they just do them. Rocks through windows, sandwich boards. We yeah. we don't have any mental institutions. They've been closed down. These people need to be off the street, and we need to take care of them. We don't have. We're waiting for the province. I spoke to Spencer Chandra Herbert about that. We all know it's a slow process. Uh, 300 people, 200 people living on the street that don't have the capacity to take care of themselves. That's not a good okay. thing.
0: Okay. Let's squeeze a couple of calls in here when we can. Brian and on the line in Langley. Go ahead, Brian. What do you want to say?
5: Well, here's my opinion. I've... I've seen this extensively for 30 years my opinion is we need a social revolution to save the people we need to change our laws we need to build more prisons and we need to get these people off of our streets so that the average family and working person who who has a home or wants to spend half a day or a tourist who comes to our city that they feel safe that is not the case now we i I, i'm just stunned by the, the 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 idiots that are making these decisions that we think that a bunch of homeless and and uh, addicted people that we give them more drugs and send them out on the street and that they're not going to hurt, injure, kill and steal from people. I'm just stunned at the stupidity of our society. All right, Brian.
0: Okay, Brian, thank you for the call. John, your thoughts. You got got 30 seconds here.
5: Okay,
4: Uh, I'm a big fan of Michael Schellenberger. He's written extensively on San Francisco. He's written a book on San Francisco called entitled San Francisco. I I invite all of your listeners to please read that. And if you don't think we catch a cold after the United States sneezes, we're wrong because this thing is is moving all up and down the West Coast. So we need to deal with it at a holistic level and have a variety of organizations with one CEO that oversees it. Right now, it's just a disparagingly Uh, 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 different different organizations taking care of things
0: john thank you for coming on today
4: thank you thanks for having
0: me all right welcome back taking a look at the pictures of the coquihalla highway in the immediate aftermath of the disastrous flooding that hit british columbia in november so we're just a little over two months since that event it seems like it was longer ago in some ways, but yeah, we're not really that far removed from the flooding and the storms that caused so much damage in British Columbia, including breaking up the Coquihalla Highway into multiple pieces. And I'll tell you, when you take a look at the damage that was done in the immediate aftermath, thought, wow, that highway, how long is that going to be shut down for now? That could be months and months before they get that thing fixed. Well, lo and behold, here we go. The Coquihalla Highway now fully reopened as of today. It had been restricted to commercial traffic, which I thought was an achievement in itself previously. Now all traffic uh, open to the Coquihalla Highway effective today. Have a listen to Transportation Minister Rob Fleming here speaking yesterday.
6: But This is not the Coquihalla as we know it. Uh, there are some changes, Electrical, electric vehicle charging stations remain out of service due to damage from the storms and some rest areas are closed. Uh, some sections of the Coquihalla are two lane traffic only with one lane in each direction and multiple speed reductions are in place. For everyone's safety, it's imperative that all motorists obey the posted speed limits and do not pass. In these sections,
0: okay. Transportation Minister Rob Fleming speaking yesterday about the Kaukaawa reopen. You heard him say there's single vehicle traffic in some sections of the highway. Uh, still some tough weather out there, and he's encouraging motorists to slow down and drive to the traffic conditions. But is it amazing the h- highways reopened now? You can drive between Hope and Merritt once again on the Kaukaawa Highway. Let's discuss now with my guest Dan Dickey. He is a truck driver based in chilliwack he is uh at bc trucker one on twitter hey dan thanks for coming on hey come on, mike hey dan when was the last time you drove the KokaHala?
2: uh sunday sunday afternoon yeah,
0: what was it like
2: oh uh, it was good it was open it was tough yeah. traffic, <laughs> and you know we were we we're getting from point a to point b so it wasn't wasn't horrible
0: yeah, it, how many sections like you know you heard him describe there that there's some areas that are single single lane, right?
2: Yes, there there's quite a few sections that are single lane and some some extended sections that are that are divided with the barrier down the middle and then some sections that aren't divided.
0: Right, so it's it's pretty slow going through those areas, no doubt.
2: Yeah, the traffic's there, I mean, the the posted speed limits, they are slowing us down to 70, 60, and 50 kilometers an hour in different areas.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Does it surprise you in any way to see this highway back up and running, even in a limited fashion, just what, a little over two months out from the flooding?
2: Uh, It surprised me when they opened it up to truck traffic before Christmas, so that that was surprising, but um, I, I Being back and forth across it a couple times i'm not surprised that they've reopened it to the general public and uh hopefully that'll that'll help on the maintenance a little bit but yeah the last couple of times i've been over it's been pretty good
0: what would you say to people who are heading out in that highway right now dan like i'm not talking truck drivers i'm just talking like you know someone heading out in their their truck their suv their minivan whatever their 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 car and they're saying okay i'm ready to drive the cocahalla again what advice would you give them
2: uh make sure you got lots of room around you and the people around you yeah. i'd say pack some pack some supplies with you i i mean two weeks ago we got stuck on the at the bottom there just outside of hope for 12 or 13 hours a, a bunch of trucks right and uh we're kind of left there to our own devices for an extended period of time so you know blankets or food or Anything that somebody thinks they might need if they were stuck somewhere for an extended period of time.
0: Yeah, for sure. Let's have a listen to the transportation minister on that point. So here is Rob Fleming talking yesterday about being prepared if you're going to drive the coca now. Have a listen.
6: There will continue to be rather increased enforcement from the RCMP and Commercial Vehicle Safety Enforcement, CVSE, on this route to ensure that drivers are being safe and that they're driving to the winter conditions. The Hala, as we all know, is a steep mountainous route, and we've seen how conditions can change quickly with severe winter weather. People should only be on the highway if their vehicle have uh, good winter tires, a full tank of gas, and they have food and water and warm winter clothes with them.
0: Okay, Transportation Minister Rob Fleming speaking yesterday about the Coquihalla reopening to all traffic. My guess is Dan Dickey. He's a truck driver. He drives the Hala a lot you heard him talk there dan about the increased enforcement on the highway not only the rcmp but he also mentioned there what did he say their commercial vehicle enforcement or whatever what is that
2: that's uh that's the group of uh enforcement officers that focus on on commercial trucks checking brakes doing inspections they man and look after the the scales that we see coming in and out of lower mainland and coming in and out of, of the Kamloops and, and different areas around the province.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And are you seeing that stepped up enforcement? Like he said, okay, yeah, we are deploying more enforcement on the highway here to keep people safe and to make sure people are following the rules. Is that your experience? Are you seeing more enforcement on the Coquihalla right now?
2: There's been more CVSE officers. I, I haven't noticed uh, any extra RCMP, there, you know, but there has been more commercial vehicle safety enforcement officers.
0: Yeah. What, what is the, what are the driving patterns like on that highway right now? Like, are you seeing people taking more risks or driving in more dangerous fashion, especially if there's snow or ice on the highway?
2: Not, not on that section from hope to merit. That's, you know, it's been pretty, pretty tame, pretty relaxed is from my experiences on over the last couple of trips. And, you know, generally people are, are giving each other space, but I mean, it's all commercial drivers up there right now. Right. So, ah. you know, um, you know, there's a couple of sections where traffic is being stopped for extended periods of time. And then it gets a little, a little haywire for a little bit after that. And, uh, people jockeying for position and then once everyone gets what, sorted out it kind of calms down again.
0: What about guys who are taking it looks like some risky maneuvers to pass. Like a lot of people may have seen some of these viral videos of trucks crossing a, a double yellow line and passing another truck on a like a blind turn that looks absolutely some of it looks absolutely insane. I don't know if some of these videos are deceiving. I mean it looks it looks dangerous, right? Like some of the some of the behavior looks dangerous.
2: Well, well those sorts of incidents happen on a daily basis. I have dash cam video almost daily of vehicles, trucks, cars, other vehicles, you know, passing me in places that probably they shouldn't be passing me. And um, I mean, that happens all over British Columbia, everywhere. I mean, it hasn't been happening on this section of the Colquhoun that's just been reopened, just simply because of the. You know, right now the speeds are restricted. Nobody knows what you're actually coming up on. Everything's, you know, everything's new. Everything's different than it was before, and people are just kind of marking their time, getting through these new construction sections, and then then they're off again
0: hey dan what about the maintenance on the highway the last time we talked i know you had some concern about the the quality of the maintenance especially snow removal ice removal on the highway seems to vary in different parts of the of the regions of the province has that improved
2: uh I, well it's only been a couple of weeks that's so you know it's the weather patterns are changing all over the place i mean i'm all, i'm all over northern bc alberta and, and down in the lower mainland, and it's I mean you get all all different conditions all over the place but i mean some areas better than others some areas you know the the ministry will, con, or will state that it's due to increased weather patterns or more treacherous weather patterns and it's just yeah i don't know it's it's tough out here right now it's 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 a struggle and yeah, would you would great. you say,
0: hey Dan, would you say the Kokahala is the most dangerous highway in the province to drive? I mean, as a guy who's driven all over BC and Western Canada, like you know, a lot of people have seen that TV show Highway Through Hell. Is that really what the Kokahala is? Is it a Highway Through Hell, or are there more dangerous part? Are there more dangerous roads to drive in the province? Would you say?
2: Oh, there's a lot more there's a lot more dangerous areas. I mean, every area has its own challenges and is dangerous for different reasons, right? Some are dangerous because yeah. of how narrow they are and um, how you can get up to speed reasonably quick when you're not wanting to. The coca is treacherous and dangerous because of the whole length of it is high speed banked, um, And there's, I mean, in, in two lane and sections, you kind of, can control traffic behind you, right? You can let traffic go by you in in different areas. On that on that Kauai, there's no opportunity to hold, you know, to keep traffic behind you for a little bit and then get out of their way and let it and let traffic by. Yeah. There, when you get onto a three or four, two or three lane section, it's it's a free for all, and and people are you know can go by you whenever they feel like it. Corners, straightaways. You know, whether you can see both of the lanes, whether one lane's covered in snow or the middle has been plowed and both both lanes are partially covered in snow, There's it can be really treacherous.
0: Yeah, last question for you, Dan. Like we heard the minister say there, look, if you are going to drive this highway, just be prepared for delays. It could kick you. You know, I've heard some estimates that the trip to, to Merritt could take you another 45 minutes or an hour longer than normal. I don't know it depends on the weather conditions, I guess. But he, he also said, "Look, make sure you've got full tank of gas, you've got some emergency supplies, and you've got good winter tires." Do you ever do you see people driving that highway with inadequate tires?
2: Uh, well, there's lot. I see lots of commercial vehicles like that are, that have legal tires on, but tires that I wouldn't necessarily take over mountain passes in the winter. You know, yeah. I put a new set of winter tires on my truck every fall or early in the in the winter and there's lots of trucks that are that are running tires that I wouldn't necessarily run in the winter. Yeah. While they're legal, I just they're not they're not set up the tread pattern on them and the and the um and the wear on them is is not what I would take into mountain passes in British Columbia this time. Yeah.
0: yeah, good tires are always a good idea. Dan, thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about the escalating tensions now on the Russia Ukraine border. Thousands of Russian troops have massed on the border. A Russian invasion of Ukraine appears imminent. Last ditch diplomatic efforts are underway in an effort to prevent it. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken in Kiev to meet with the Ukrainian president, signaling the urgency of the crisis. The U.S. White House calls the situation extremely dangerous canada also engaged at the diplomatic level foreign affairs minister melanie Jolie met with the ukrainian prime minister on monday on a high stakes visit to ukraine she says canada's support uh, supports ukraine sovereignty from russia have a listen to this report now from global news
6: Russia's aggression near the Ukrainian border
3: is now more than mere sabre-rattling. Troops conducted tactical exercises southeast of Ukraine, while to the north, Russian tanks rolled into Belarus as those two nations prepared to rehearse repelling an external attack. With the threat surrounding Ukraine, its foreign minister has asked Canada for military equipment.
1: We know that it is important uh, to play our part in the context and therefore we're looking at options and we'll take a decision in a timely manner.
3: Canada already has a rotation of about 200 armed forces members assisting and training Ukrainian troops as part of Operation Unifier.
0: Okay, you heard the voice of the foreign affairs minister there, Melanie Jolie, in that report. Let's discuss now with my guest, Steve Day. Steve is if the uh, Steve is the founder and president of Reticle Ventures Canada. He is a former special forces commander in the Canadian military. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Steve, thanks a lot for coming on today.
5: Yes, my pleasure to be here.
0: Hey, Steve, what is your read on this situation right now? Do you think this appears uh, imminent that Russia is going in there? We'll see a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Do you think that's what's going to happen?
5: Um, I don't personally believe that they'll end up invading. That's not to say that they won't. But if we actually just take a step back and look at what is going on, uh, you know, whether it be Russia or China or Canada or the broader West engagements, Right now, I would characterize this as a bit of posturing on the Russian side. Um, again, not to say they won't invade, but I, I actually think it's unlikely.
0: What do you think the Russians want here? Like, what is Putin up to? What? Why is he doing this?
5: Well, part of and, and again, I think from a Canadian perspective, we often lose sight of what's going on in, in the broader global competition space. And Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, those typical if you will, bad actors, largely are militarily weaker than the West. So when you've got an improper balance or an unbalance there of military power, that weaker power will often use other techniques to achieve their national aims. So in this case, I think from a Russian perspective, they are just trying to get more leverage against the West, against Western Europe in particular, and what Vladimir Putin probably does not want is another Western liberal democratic nation right on his doorstep. Now, if Ukraine stays unstabilized, destabilized, failed or failing, that actually um, serves his needs more than it tipping into the EU or NATO or Western uh, alliance, if you will.
0: Okay, Steve, we, um, we see reports that a small group of Canadian special forces has been deployed uh, to Ukraine. We see many news, uh, news outlets reporting that. Can you talk a little bit about your own back, background in Canada's special special forces? How long did you serve there? Where were you deployed? What kind of work did you do there?
5: Yes, well, I, I was a member of uh, Joint Task Force 2, so Canada's yeah. National Counterterrorism Unit. I was the commanding officer there. I spent over a decade inside, and the acronym is CANSOF, Canadian Special Operations Forces. Um, and I've, I've been all over the globe um, working on behalf of the Global Affairs Canada, because D&D supports global affairs internationally and supports you know, the Department of Public Safety uh, domestically. So yeah, I've, I've been fortunate to work in, in uh, all over the interesting vacation spots that the government of Canada has particular <laughs> military challenges uh, over my career.
0: Okay, that's fascinating. I, I, I certainly appreciate your your uh, service to Canada, Steve, for sure. So when we see these reports about Canadian special forces on the on the ground in, in Ukraine uh, right now, what do you what is your analysis of that? Like, how many of our people are over there, and what are they doing?
5: Well. it, it By and large, and for operational security, we never really want to discuss special operations as they're happening in the moment. But what I would characterize it as is it's, it's generally smaller teams that are supporting the larger conventional or general purpose force that's on the ground. So right now, everyone knows Operation Unifier, Canada's had over 200 trainers in Ukraine since 2015. And Kansov, again, has episodically gone in there to do other very niche training alongside our our uh, you know partners and brothers and sisters in the conventional force. Um, so, you know, deploying Canadian special operations really should be an expectation of Canadians when there's a crisis or an emerging situation because it just gives another view on the challenges that the troops on the ground are facing. And more importantly, it gives another information conduit back to the national defense and national decision makers in Ottawa. It's just a different perspective, often on the same problem.
0: Right. Speaking to Steve Day, former special forces commander in the Canadian military, and we're talking about the tensions right now on the Russia-Ukraine border, Uh, the U.S. White House warning in in the past 24 hours that a Russian invasion of Ukraine could be imminent. Uh, The White House calling it an extremely dangerous situation steve what do you think the chances are here of of a shooting war uh and the potential for canada or or our allies to somehow get mixed up into this because right now we're hearing you know the united states is warning of economic sanctions and retaliation if russia goes in right
5: yeah and and let's not lose sight of the fact that there's already a shooting war happening in the donbass region There's already a front line in there, and there are, you know, exchanging rounds going back across that. And that's been going on for years. So the real question is, does this tip over into a, you know, kind of full-scale Russian military intervention, and what would the West be willing to do to counter that uh, 100,000-man force that the Russians have assembled? Here's the reality. Right now, um, other than the Russian forces that are in place— Uh, clearly a very small Western footprint supporting those Ukrainian forces and the Ukrainian forces that that are there, we don't have a lot of what the term is combat power on the ground to prevent uh, a Russian corps or two from rolling right into Kiev. The question would be, is it worth taking it back if they decide to do that? Mm. And now all of a sudden you are talking a heavy metal, force on force, peer nation-to-peer nation-type confrontation.
0: Okay, Steve, we're watching it very closely. Thank you for coming on with your expertise and analysis today. Appreciate it.
5: No problem, Mike. I'd like to, I'd like to make a shout-out, if I could, to Chilliwack. Uh, I had three years at one combat engineer regiment and the Canadian Forces School of Military, uh, military Engineering early in my career. Loved my time in the Lower Mainland.
0: Right, Welcome back to the show as we continue talking about the escalating tensions on the Russia-Ukraine border. More than 100,000 Russian troops amassed on the border is a Russian invasion of Ukraine imminent. The United States feels that it is the U.S. White House this morning characterizing the situation as extremely dangerous. Multiple news organizations now are reporting in Canada that Canada has deployed a small contingent of special forces forces. personnel on the ground in Ukraine as the tensions rise. So us have a listen to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau speaking about this this morning.
6: We are there as friends and allies. Um, we have a military mission there, Operation Unifier, uh, and Minister Anand has been uh, talking about that. Uh, we are there uh, to support and train Uh, the Ukrainian troops, uh, and we're working with our international partners and colleagues to make it very, very clear that Russian aggression and further incursion into Ukraine is absolutely unacceptable.
0: Prime Minister Justin Trudeau speaking this morning. Is war imminent in the region? Let's check in with Andrew Rasoulis now. He's an analyst with Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Very pleased to welcome him to the show. Andrew, thanks for coming on today.
7: Thanks very much for having me, Mike.
0: Appreciate you doing this. What is Canada's role here? You heard the Prime Minister there talking about the mission uh, in which Canadians have been deployed here. What, what is our role here in this uh, potential conflict now?
7: Well, we, our role is twofold, uh, as it's always been. One, on the one side, it's deterrence, and that's what the Defence uh, Department does and the Canadian Armed Forces do. On the other side, it's diplomacy, and that's what Minister Jolie has been doing uh, this week uh, in Kiev, and, and she's also got some meetings in Paris Uh, later this week, and also what uh, Anthony Blinken, the American Undersecretary of State, is doing uh, in Kiev today, and in uh, uh, Paris uh, tomorrow, and in uh, Berlin tomorrow, and in um, uh, Geneva, most importantly on Friday, with uh, Minister Lavrov, the Russian Foreign Minister, on the diplomatic side. So Canada is actually engaged now in both sides of the equation, the defence and the diplomacy, um, your, your, uh, your intro said that war may be imminent. I think the Americans are simply, uh, making people aware of the gravity of the situation. But at the same time, the diplomatic option is very much on the table. And that's where everyone's putting their emphasis right now.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of last-ditch, high-stakes diplomacy going on right now with Canada involved in the highest levels there, for sure. You've got the uh, U.S. Secretary of State on the ground in the region there as well, uh, meeting with the Ukrainian president. At the same time that the diplomacy is going on, uh, you've got the U.S. White House, though, saying that they believe Russia a Russian attack on Ukraine is uh, imminent, could possibly happen at any time. And the White House calling it an extremely dangerous situation. Is that also your analysis, or do you think well, the likely, likelihood of a Russian invasion is less likely than that?
7: They uh, well, I believe that the capability is there, and always with intelligence anal- analysis, uh, the question is capability versus intentions. So certainly, the Russians have deployed uh, a very capable military, operational, war fighting force on the Ukrainian border, and they have a whole spectrum of options from a limited conventional attack to cyber-attacking the Ukrainians, even without moving the tanks across the border. There are a number of options the Russians have to inflict pain on the Ukrainians as part of their disagreement with Ukraine about NATO and so on. Um, on the other hand, uh, the I, I don't believe the word imminent uh, is actually where, where I would put my uh, my analysis. My analysis is that it's very... Uh, difficult situation the russians are very serious about the military option they will not allow negotiations to drag on in- infinitely while they believe that naval enlargement uh, poses a significant threat to the russian concept of sphere of influence and, and yeah. where their interests lie having said that there is a still the time for diplomacy and the time for diplomacy is now it's this week and that is taking place
0: Speaking to Andrew Rasulis, Canadian Global Affairs Institute, could, could you expand a little bit, Andrew, on your thoughts on, on Russia's motivations here? Like, what is Putin's game here? Why is he doing this? What is he up to?
7: Okay, this is a long-term issue that actually even goes back to, uh, to, to, to Yeltsin in the, in the 90s. This is Russia dealing with the collapse of the Soviet Union. When it was a superpower, it had a huge sphere of influence in in, in, in Eastern Europe. Uh, and then since 1991, uh, that has been really withdrawn back toward Russia proper. It's maintained some influence in certain countries. But the NATO expansion in various tranches, starting in 1997 and moving further out toward uh, uh, Russia has caused the russians a a problem on their perception of their security and their sphere of influence that can be argued nato argues that there's no threat that nato is simply spreading the zone of of democracy economic stability and so on and that the russians have nothing to fear but the russians have a very different perspective on spheres of influence uh, and they don't subscribe as much as the west does to the rules-based system Uh, they subscribe more to a power-based system and from that point perspective they see the nato enlargement as a threat and they have been hammering against the west on this verbally for years and that now they have taken the time to say okay enough is enough we brought the military uh, power, we have the final arbitrator of international relations, which is military force, and we will use that unless we can't, if we don't get what we want from a diplomatic solution. And let's talk and let's find something. And I believe actually a compromise over the, the NATO enlargement issue is actually not that difficult to arrive in the sense that I think people understand that de facto Ukraine is not going to join NATO anytime soon. Although it has the right to apply, NATO does not have consensus to accept. And this is what happened this summer. There was a motion at NATO to bring Ukraine in, and it was rejected by a lack of consensus. So a diplomatic solution that kind of says, OK, it's not going to happen today. So how can we assuage the Russians uh, and, and talks of things like moratoriums, a pause? And the right. Russians are after a, a, a framework framework of security in europe there has already been agreement between the americans and the russians and nato and russia on some moves toward diplomacy in their in the realm of arms control and confidence okay. building that's, yeah. that's
0: thank you agree. thank you andrew for your analysis on it today we're watching it closely appreciate it
7: you're
2: very welcome